Let's pray. We thank you, O God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you are a God of mercy and of grace. And uh, we thank you for making that mercy known to us in the act of redemption through our Lord Jesus Christ. For we were in a helpless place, without hope, and yet you had mercy on us. And I, I pray that your spirit would fill us with such joy that you would animate us, that we would live for your glory alone and it would be fueled by the constant remembrance of the life of Christ lived, died, ascended for us. We pray that you would show us him now, stir our hearts to affection. May the words in my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This morning is Ascension Sunday, the day that Jesus left his disciples in order to rejoin his Father in heaven. And the narrative of this event is recounted by Luke in both his gospel and in the book of Acts. The gospel version was read for you earlier, and the story goes that when the time to leave came, Jesus lifted up his hands, kind of like I do at the benediction at the end of each service, and he blessed his friends. And as he was blessing them, he was taken up into heaven, leaving them staring up into heaven with joy in their hearts and praise on their lips. Despite the fact that they were losing Jesus, they celebrated. Because the ascension of Jesus Christ means hope for the restoration of humanity. Here was a flesh and blood human being ascending into heaven, into the presence of God, where he would sit down at the right hand of the Father, a position of power, and be given charge over all the earth. You see, Jesus' ascension was an enthronement, the recovery of what was lost in the Garden of Eden. That is, the reign of a human being over the creation that God made and gave to Adam and Eve to reign over as his image bearers, his representatives, his co-regents on earth. This was a privileged position that was lost because although God's co-regents, Adam and Eve staged a rebellion in an attempt to advance their position in this world. They, like the rest of humanity since, wanted to climb the ladder from creature to creator. They wanted to be gods, a desire that can never truly be filled. But they tried, and, and we try still to this day, and in their coup attempt, they pressed God's creation into service and, and brought a curse upon it. A piece of fruit as their instrument of rebellion. Not a sword, but a piece of fruit. And when their coup proved wildly unsuccessful, they were left with brokenness all around and within themselves. Not only had they forfeited their privileged position, but had violated creation in the process. Paul Kingsnorth is a a novelist and poet and a recent convert to Christianity within the last year. And in a recent article telling the story of his 
conversion from, from atheism to Zen Buddhism to Wicca and finally to Christianity, he remarks that how even though we are separated from Eden by millennia, humanity keeps attempting the same coup over and over again, pressing creation into its service. And he writes this, nobody with eyes to see can deny what humanity has done to the living tissue of the planet, though plenty still try. Whatever has gotten us here, it's clear where we are going, into a world which industrial humanity has ravaged much of the wild earth, tamed the rest, and shaped all nature to its ends. The rebellion against God manifested itself in a rebellion against creation, against all nature, human and wild. We would remake earth down to the last nanoparticle to suit our desires, which we now call needs. Our new world would be globalized, uniform, interconnected, digitized, hyper-real, monitored, always on. We were building a machine to replace God. Or you might say, we are building a machine to replace God. It's an insane project. It's destined to fail. But as long as humanity remains corrupted by our desires, it's also a project we're destined to repeat over and over again. Which is why the ascension of Jesus Christ is such a hopeful thing. Because in him, humanity has been restored to God's original intention for us and for his creation. He has ascended in order to recover the reign we abandoned in our rebellion so that we can finally stop rebelling. As Paul writes in Ephesians 1, God demonstrated his power in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. See, in Jesus, a human being is again reigning over creation in order to govern this world to the glory of God. In Jesus, the awe of Psalm 8 finds its inspiration. When I look at your heavens, the, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have put in place, what are human beings that you're mindful of them? Mortals that you care for them. Yet you've made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You've given them dominion over the work of your hands. You've put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And Jesus' humanity is again crowned with glory and honor, such glory and honor that it caused the psalmist to blurt out, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And this ascendant God-man is calling us to follow him, to follow him into work that is motivated by his glory rather than our anxious and greedy pursuit of comfort or celebrity. He's calling for us to cease our rebellion, to stop rebuilding the Tower of Babel or a machine to replace God, but to lay down our arms and instead rest in his promise to provide for us what we need rather than the wants that we now call needs. He's calling us to humble participation rather than the antagonistic activity 
we've engaged in from the moment we first drew breath in this world. In short, he's calling us to die to ourselves and to live in him instead. And because he knows how difficult this is for us to to die to ourselves, he knows how difficult this is, he has sent the Holy Spirit to lead us into this life of of satisfying self-sacrifice. Pentecost is next week when we will celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit to fill believers with the strength and the conviction and the courage that they needed to live this life according to God's original design for humanity rather than our delusional visions of self-ascendancy. It's truly amazing how thoroughly and, and completely Jesus has redeemed humanity. He lived for us a life we couldn't live. He died for us a death we couldn't survive. And in his resurrection, he's given us the hope of eternal life through faith. He then ascended for us into the presence of God so that we might be assured of God's mercy and provision. And having been enthroned over all of creation, he's restored us to our position as God's representatives on earth. And he sent his Holy Spirit to assist us in following him into the fulfillment of our calling as his creatures and children. It's truly amazing how thoroughly and completely Jesus has redeemed humanity. And yet, our discomfort or pride continues to pull at us, tempt us to ignore this exhaustive generosity and to get your own, to hoard your possessions or to make a name for yourselves. Which brings us finally to Psalm 123. Because Psalm 123 is a prayer to the one enthroned in the heavens, to Jesus ultimately, And it is a prayer that we can say together as an act of penitence, reorienting us to our position in Christ. Psalm 123 is a member of the Psalms of Ascent, that that group of psalms that would have been sung by saints making their way up to Jerusalem for the festivals in that city. uh, Jerusalem was and is situated on a mountaintop, so one looked up to Jerusalem. But this psalmist didn't just look up to Jerusalem, but in looking up to Jerusalem, he he looked beyond it to the heavens, to the one enthroned there. And his cry to this enthroned one was for mercy. You hear it in verse three, have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us. One scholar describes the peculiar character of mercy when he explains that mercy is an aspect of grace, but the unique quality of mercy is that it is given to the pitiful. And this cry for mercy came from a place of of desperation. He he likens himself to a a servant or a maid looking up to the hand of a master or a mistress. His dependence was absolute. He could not help himself. It was a pitiful position from which he cried for mercy. And the mercy he sought was from the scorn of those at ease and the contempt of the proud, as he describes them in the fourth verse. His soul's been filled up with contempt and scorn, and he can't take anymore. 
No doubt the psalmist had in mind some physical enemy who scoffed at the Hebrew people to discourage them in their life of obedience and faith. And scholars tried to recreate the situation and some even put forth specific candidates for the people who are at ease as the psalmist describes them in the fourth verse. But rather than try to pinpoint the historical identity of these contemptuous and scornful people, it's, it's perhaps sufficient to point out that they are those who are proud and value ease above all things, whoever they are, whenever they lived, wherever they lived. They think too much of themselves and their sole goal in life is comfort, which can be had through dominance, self-ascendancy. The psalmist is therefore describing the state of a fallen humanity as a whole. He's not so much speaking about them as he is about we, us. His description would certainly accurately describe Americans, even the church in America, where a a bleeding God-man who invites you to die and find yourself in him has been exchanged for a genie who exists to ensure your comfort and success or happiness in this life. Christianity is hollowed out whenever we use it as a means to an end rather than as an end in itself. If you're following Christ because people of faith tend to have lower levels of anxiety or when it comes to coping with some tragedy, they've proven to be better at it or because it's proven that kids who grow up in religious families are more likely to keep out of trouble, then your God is not Yahweh. Your God is ease. And you can know ease is your God if when things don't go as you would like or you experience some hardship, you become contemptuous or scornful of what Christ has done for you in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. With a God of ease, the the work of Christ is is minimized and and forgotten easily in the face of some present disappointment. You'll experience discomfort or pain and ask Jesus, what have you done for me lately? As Americans, we all probably flirt with this temptation toward the God of ease. I know I do. But here, the psalmist has given us a, a prayer to pray whenever we feel this temptation at work in our soul when we feel our souls filling up with contempt and scorn, not of others, but of our own. We can beg for the Lord to look on us in pity, to have mercy on us, not because we're afflicted from without, but from within, with the same temptation that lured Adam and Eve into disobedience in the Garden of Eden, the temptation to rebel against God in favor of an impossible pursuit of happiness apart from him. The psalmist has given us a prayer that reminds us of our position in relationship to God. One scholar writes, the disciples' obedience, or dependence on God and submission to God should be no less total than the most obedient servant of an earthly master. But the irony is this. The irony is that this humble position will bring the ease we desire. Pursue happiness and you'll miss it all. 
but look to Christ as a servant to his master or a maid to her mistress and he'll lift you up. You'll find yourself satisfied by him, restored in him to your original position of glory as a a co-regent, a representative of God on earth. It's truly amazing how thoroughly and completely Jesus has redeemed humanity. He lived for us a life we couldn't live. He died for us a death we couldn't survive and in his resurrection has given us the hope of eternal life through faith. He then ascended for us into the presence of God so that we might be assured of God's mercy and provision for us. And having been enthroned over all of creation, he has restored us to our position as God's representatives on earth. And he sent his Holy Spirit to assist us in following him into the fulfillment of our calling as God's creatures. It's truly amazing how thoroughly and completely Jesus has restored humanity. It's James, the brother of Jesus, who perhaps said it most succinctly, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Therefore, with joy in your hearts, with praise on your lips, we're going to stand up together and looking up to the ascendant Jesus Christ enthroned in the heavens, we're going together say this psalm as those who are making our way towards him, that he might have mercy on us and we might find ourselves in him. So let's stand up and say this psalm together. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than its fill of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.